there's a basis for a psychological consideration of the value of a planet, which is not easily dismissed. You look up in the sky and you see the clouds. You don't see the other, you see continents on the, on the sky, but you don't even get to see the cities because they are 600, uh, 1200 kilometers away in the sky. Welcome back, friends, to another very special episode of Selden Crisis. Today we have not one, but two guests on to talk about their unique and exciting views of possible human futures. We have intelligent and soulful machines, rotating space habitats, cruel but compelling villains, incredibly long timescales, a city on Mars, Dyson swarms around our sun, and many others in our galaxy, exhilarating action scenes, interstellar travel, and much, much more. Today we're going to celebrate independent science fiction, featuring a couple of very different but highly imaginative takes on what may be in store for humanity in centuries and millennia to come. A little bit about our guests today. Tobias Cabral is a clinical psychologist, as well as a lifelong speculative fiction fan, a mythology and aerospace junkie, and perhaps a bit unhealthily preoccupied with chaos complexity theory. Both alone and in collaboration with other authors, he has written a number of science fiction novels, novellas, and short stories. Welcome, Tobias. Thank you kindly, Joel. Considering how enthusiastically I've listened to your podcast in the past, it is a groove to be here. All right. And Erasmo Acosta is an emigre from Venezuela who came to the U.S. in 1996 and worked for most of his life in software, but is now the author of a fascinating and incredibly audacious novel that spans a billion years, that's with a B, into the far distant future. K3 Plus is the story of humanity's journey from a single planet to become masters of the entire galaxy. Great to have you on, Erasmo. Thank you, Joel. I'm privileged to be here. Okay, well, let's get going. I'm gonna start with you, Erasmo. When I first came across one of your essays on Medium, I can't remember which one now since I've read quite a few of them, I was just blown away by the boldness of your vision. Your book, K3 Plus, is no different. You tell the story of a young man born in the late 20th century and follow his life for a billion years into the future. To do this, you had to imagine the course of humanity from a fractious civilization on a single world, finding a way to grow and thrive beyond the cradle of Earth and imagine a possible path to the stars, and you describe each incredible step in detail. Can you give our listeners a brief introduction to this amazing story, what the research for it entailed, and tell me how you summoned the courage to launch into such a huge project? Thank you, Joel. Well, K3 Plus is the story of how mankind survives our current dystopia to build a post-carcery civilization in space. The key elements of the story are rotating habitats, cylindrical megastructures that emulate Earth's gravity by spinning. The story begins in the distant future when we have colonized the Milky Way, all the galaxies in the local group, and are in the process of colonizing neighboring galactic clusters. We no longer settle planets, but build these rotating, rotating colonies that I just told you about. When you have enough of them around the star to completely surround it, you capture its entire energy output, and that's what we call a Dyson Swarm. Planets become a curiosity because very few have set foot on one. We met the main character, a guy named Fedrex, with an X, celebrating his billion-year birthday by space diving into a planet with a bunch of friends. Humans are genetically enhanced. They live forever looking like, like they're in their early 20s. They have nanobots inside their bodies ensuring perfect health and use neural interfaces to communicate. In K3+, people no longer speak but exchange thoughts. Thought exchange was inspired by the way people from the Second Foundation mentally interact with each other. Combined with a faster-than-light communication technology, people can have all sorts of interactions across millions of light years. Fedrix and his friends live in a colony ship called the Eternity, 
going from star to star, delivering billions of colonies, colonists. When they arrive to a new star, they, st they begin building rotating habitats. After they get everything going for the future Dyson Swarm, they move on to the next star. So, after a spectacular week-long party, the storyline jumps to 2016, and the next couple of chapters are devoted to how mankind becomes a spacefaring civilization. Fedrix was born Federico Tarifa in 1966 in Colombia. He is being interested in space his entire life. In 2016, he realizes that building rotating habitats instead of trying to colonize the moon or Mars is the way to go, and he becomes an advocate for the cause. Years later, a group of scientists, engineers, and ex-NASA astronauts create an organization called the Space Initiative. They begin mining asteroids, and after a few decades, manage to build the first rotating habitat, a very tiny colony the size of a stadium and capable of housing a thousand people. They call it Terminus in honor to the great Isaac Asimov. Federico becomes one of the first residents of Terminus and later gets promoted to be the colony administrator. From Terminus, they launch an automated mining operation to the planet Mercury. This allows them to build rotating habitats the size of an island and capable of housing tens of millions of people. The influx of raw materials allowed the Space Initiative to pay all their loans, and it becomes extremely wealthy. It also becomes an independent nation with its own seat at uh, the United Nations. Little by little, people start emigrating to space, trying to escape climate change and economic inequality. The Space Initiative offers free housing and a universal basic income to all its citizens. In the beginning, only a few people lived, but in the 23rd century, 17 billion people live in space versus just 3 billion people on Earth, and nations begin to collapse due to underpopulation. The United States declared emigration an act of treason in an effort to deter people from leaving, but the exodus continues. At the same time, the Space Initiative is desperate to extract a group of scientists that has just discovered the secret to faster-than-light communication, because this technology will allow a unified human civilization throughout the universe. The initiative is willing to do whatever it takes to secretly extract their scientists. Federico is now a Space Initiative board member, and the chairman puts him in charge of a covert operation to rescue the scientists. As people continue to flee, the United States launches a first strike attack with space ballistic missiles, destroying two of the habitats. Russia and China are allied with the Space Initiative and launch a massive counter-cyber attack that paralyzes most of the U.S. offensive weapons. But the American president launches all the nuclear weapons he has left to the two, against the two superpowers, triggering, global, triggering World War III. A century after the war, humans restore Earth to its pristine glory, but everybody lives for space, and the planet becomes a vacation destination. By the year 2400, a trillion people live in space, and new technologies allow the construction of continent-sized rotating habitats, each, each capable of housing 5 billion people. Humans are now ready to send the first interstellar ship to Alpha Centauri, the ship is accelerated without fuel by bouncing a powerful laser off its back shield. The laser uh, provides, a provides a tiny acceleration, so it takes about four years to reach 20% of light speed and a total of 25 years to reach Proxima. Once the first interstellar voyage is successful, mankind colonizes the Milky Way in under a million years. But even before our galaxy is fully colonized, they reach for neighboring galaxies. Now, K3 plus hinges on the Fermi paradox, but now when the storyline returns to the future, the eternity is in intergalactic space outside the M87 galaxy when they encounter the first extraterrestrial civilization. Wow. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a lot. Um, that's a, a big story. Uh, Probably bigger than anybody else has ever written. <laughs> uh, beyond uh, the audacious vision of telling this story, 
I was really impressed by your depth of conviction regarding the most effective path humanity has to take to reach the stars. And you know uh, from our exchanges uh, online, I'm one of those planetary chauvinists who loves the idea of humanity settling Mars. I've been a member of the Mars Society for 20 years or so, and, and other worlds in our solar system, uh, along with the kind of space settlements you're describing. Um, in the story, the efforts to settle Mars don't go well, uh, being undermined by the deleterious effects of gravity coupled with substance addiction and depression. Why are you so convinced uh, that planetary settlements must be avoided in humanity's future and that only the approach you describe is worth exploring? One thing uh, Asimov constantly reminds me is that we all have our biases and that it's very difficult to get past them. I believe he had an epiphany during that conversation with Gerard O'Neill when he coined the term planetary chauvinism. To be honest, I think it's a bit strong, and uh, I, I actually use the term deeply ingrained planetary bias. I think it's a little bit softer than saying planetary chauvinism. And first, uh, planets are fundamentally limited. If I had a magic wand, and made Mars and Venus identical to Earth, gravity and all, we'd fill them in a couple of generations. Second, to get access to the amount of raw materials available in space, we'd have to disassemble those planets, and we know how well that's going on Earth right now. <laughs> Personally, I have come to regard Earth as mankind's womb. Our ancestors lived in caves, I believe our descendants will live in these rotating oases around the stars. We can, we can house more people inside rotating habitats around the sun than on all habitable planets in the Milky Way. And we still have another 200 billion stars to settle, regardless of whether they have habitable planets or not. Finally, I want to add that stars are the low-hanging fruit for a technology-advanced civilization, such as mankind, to colonize space because they offer virtually unlimited energy and raw materials. We will start building rotating habitats around the sun, one by one, and within a thousand years, we'll have built so many of them, we completely surround, surround, our, uh, surround our star. That said, uh, I'm not stopping anybody from going to settle Mars in the, the class of Venus if they want. All right, good, because I'm heading there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm curious about one thing, and I want to ask you uh, after we talk to get Tobias's book, into Tobias's book a little bit. Um, but I'm curious about when exactly that um, interview on, uh, with Daryl O'Neill was with Asimov. Um, because um, is it before or uh, after he'd written the sequels and the prequels to Foundation? Do you remember? Exactly 1975. 75. Okay, so it was before he wrote all that stuff. Okay, that's interesting. I guess he had a lot of his plate. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, so let's move on to the, a completely different take on the future. Um Tobias, you wrote a really interesting book, a few of them, uh, but the one that I first read was New Eyes. Um, I think it's your most recent published book or no, One Sense, I guess, right? Yeah. One Sense. Yeah, so um, it's set largely on Mars in what feels like just a few decades into the future. Uh, robots feature extensively in your story, and the relationships between humanity and the artificial life we create is a big part of it as well. I was really captivated by the depth of the characters in your story, including the villains, who are really quite nasty, but also have compelling backstories and always believe they are doing the right thing. Can you give us an introduction to the story and why you decided to center it so much on the relationship of humanity with artificial life. Yeah, thanks, Joel. Um, and thank you very much for your words on my book. Um, New Eyes is actually a sequel to a book that I co-wrote with uh, Joseph Cotilli. Um, funny story, very briefly. Um, way, way back in graduate school, sometime during the mid-Taft administration or something, um, Joe and I were... Um, 
on a 12-hour, an excruciatingly boring 12-hour shift at a psychiatric hospital where we worked. Oh. And we decided, hey, let's write a story together. So he and I sketched out some world building and some alternate history and a few characters. And we wrote like, you know, the, roughly the first chapter of the story. And then as with so many things in life, it sort of fell away. And uh, fast forward some 20 years later, we reconnect on Facebook. And he said, hey, do you remember that story we started writing? Yeah, well, you know, we never finished it. But there's like, you know, a bunch of other stories that I wrote in that world. And I said, oh, that's groovy. Um, and then we put our heads together and we finished that first story called The Source, um, novella as it turned out, because brevity is not my strong suit. Um, and um, several other stories ensued and they're all partaking of the same general universe. And one of them, his, his daughter, his brilliant daughter, came up with the idea of an android serial killer. And they bounced the idea off of me. And because, you know, in addition to being a huge geek, I'm also like, badly addicted to puns. I thought about alternate spellings for the word serial. <clears throat> um, but they, you know, this, this Android was horribly abused, um, ridiculously abused. And as a result came up with this delusional idea of avenging artificial life against humans who in any way normalized that kind of abuse and started killing people in a very sort of cyberpunky way. Um, who, you know, somebody who was using androids to test radiation shielding. Um, he designed nanites that would, like, detonate his skin because androids are very sensitive to ionizing radiation. Um, another a restaurateur who you employed and abused only androids in his restaurant, you know, had his viscera explode. Um, so it, this, is, this was a, a very brutal idea, but at the core was this being, this sentient being who was just trying to do the right thing and had been so distorted by its experience, his experiences that, you know, he turned to this, you know, this awful mode of vengeance. Um, and so that was sort of a detective cyberpunky, you know, story. Um, but I came up with the idea for New Eyes, which would be a sequel that would focus on what were ultimately secondary characters in Mechanical Error which I guess violates rules. You know, you keep your main characters in the sequel, but, you know, whatever. You know, I had the Empire Strike back, you know, focused on, like, Boba Fett and the guy with the, you know, cybernetic implants. Um, and the objective was to, in some way, redeem this poor android, you know, to some way, without reprogramming, without a death sentence of consciousness, to bring him into a more moral, empathic way of being. And as a result, I, I created these characters and, you know, as continued and fleshed out these characters, you know, one of whom was like his, you know, the beautiful woman in the front row who never failed to attend the androids performances, you know, and who was never given a name because her purpose was to be his, you know, tragically distantiated, you know, moral center. Um, then, you know, she, I gave her a name and this one cyberneticist who was un inadvertently duped into helping the android create the nanites that would cause his victims to explode and felt he had to redeem himself. And in order to redeem themselves, they have to go to Mars because Mars has much more lax laws on androids than Earth. On Earth, androids are property. On Mars, they work off their manufacturing costs and can become full citizens. Um, Indentured servants, I guess, right? Essentially, yeah. And but yeah. in the sense, in an existential sense, you know, I'm working off the cost of my, you know, presence in the universe, and after that, it's on me. Um, which you know, people of good conscience can disagree as to the morality of that. But I mean, you know, it takes a lot of money to build an android, so something. Um, but I mean, the, the the one of the main thoughts I had was that if you have a truly sentient AI a networked general intelligence that has achieved self-reflexive awareness to the extent that you could call it sentient, then our task as creators of such beings is far less akin to programming than parenting. And that's, that's a thing I'm, I'm sure we'll get back into, but I mean, uh, you, you mentioned my villains and I love my villains. I love my villains. Um, one of them in particular, Irene, she is so, marvelous. She could have been such a tremendously like fruitful generative agent in the universe, except that certain things went wrong in her background and she became somewhat, you know, narcissistic and psychopathic. And so you can see how awesome she is, but you can also see how broken she is. And that's really hard for me to write. You know, see these actually, there are two villains, two main villains in New Eyes, and they're the first villains I'd ever written. 
because I really? have an unhealthy inability to dis- distance myself from the empathy for characters. So to make them bad and deserving of bad things is really difficult for me. So that was a bit of growth. You anyway. know, I, I, I have to interrupt you for a second. I didn't yeah. even really get that Irene was a villain at first. Right. Uh, yeah, I was like drawn into her so much, like when you first started writing about her that I'd like, you know, really liked her from the get go. And then gradually she became quite sick, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's, I guess she was that the, way all along. In my mind, she's got the greatest voice too. She's like a cross between Catherine Hepburn and Wendy Malick. Hmm. But anyway, <laughs> that, that's the thing. I mean, I come from a family of musicians, so I, I hear voices in my head which sounds a lot worse when I say it out loud. <laughs> okay. Uh, so that's the wrap on that, on your book. That's a yeah. quite a bit. Um, Sorry, mate. Okay. As someone, this is kind of for both of you, uh, as someone who's never written a novel, uh, I'm often overwhelmed by the amount of research that a novelist and especially a hard sci-fi novelist has to do to sound like they know what they're talking about. Uh, so can I get you guys to talk about that process and some of the biggest challenges you face in your world building and creating the details of a story set in a world so unlike what we as the readers are familiar with? For instance, Erasmo in K-3+, you go into quite a bit of detail in the construction of rotating space habitats and the Kardashev scale. Can you talk at all about what that means and your process of researching these concepts and maybe you could also describe a little bit more about the Fermi paradox and how that plays into the story. Perhaps I should explain what a rotating habitat is. It's basically a gigantic cylinder made of a rectangular section bent until it forms a tube. This is what we call the drum. And two circular sections to seal the atmosphere inside. The cylinder rotates to create the effect of gravity inside the drum but at the center of the regular sections, you have zero gravity. The concept of rotating habitats was popularized by American physicist Gerard O'Neill in the 70s, and K3 Plus extends his work to incorporate 21st century technology. For example, we use a Kevlar composite to build them bigger than O'Neill's uh, original design. We grow crops using vertical farming with aeroponic irrigation, and animal protein is grown in vitro without sacrificing a living being. All this is done in the zero-gravity area along the rotating axis, maximizing the use of the drum for human activities. Uh, the Fermi paradox is one of the most exciting aspects of K3+. The best metaphor I came up with to explain it is if you are waiting for a friend who lives half a mile away and he doesn't arrive within the hour, something out of the ordinary happened. That is the essence of the Fermi paradox. Given the size and age of the Milky Way, there's been more than enough, thousands of times more than enough, time for an alien civilization to colonize it, even without faster-than-light travel. With our current technology, we can achieve the task in under a million years. I want to be very cautious, very cautious with my words at this point. The more we learn, the more likely it appears that we are the first civilization in the Milky Way. Stars like the sun are only 2.5% of the galaxy. And even the sun appears to be exceptionally tame compared to other yellow dwarfs. Then when you look at the very unlikely accidents in the evolution of life on Earth, we are here doing this webcast by a miracle. Finally, uh, yellow dwarfs have a very short uh, have a very short life. In the next 500 million years, the sun's luminosity will increase by 10%, and that will spell doom to Earth's biosphere. Yep. It'll get a bit hot. Hmm. You may say that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I kind of agree. I, after uh, reading Stephen Webb's book, 
on um, why are we here. Uh, the it, I came to the same conclusion he did. You know, he led me there um, that we are probably alone. There's just so many crazy steps required for you know, for life to become uh, multicellular in the first place, and then to actually become you know the time it takes to get to where we are. Tobias, if, if I may, I mean. Yes, the the in retrospect, the probability of all the things having happened exactly the way that they did is hilariously low. However, the present is always inevitable. I mean, it, it, the the fact that we're having this conversation means that all those things have already occurred, and that, that's you know I, I understand if you're extrapolating on probabilities, you know you're you're going to say yes. How likely is it that this happened? But I mean. The, the probability of things having occurred the way that they did so that we could be having this conversation is one. <laughs> you know, it, it is 100 percent probable that all of those things could have occurred. So it, it's I, I. I understand that there are and I know you're probably going to get into this more about the Fermi paradox. And I, I by the way, I freaking love that idea about, you know, the guy down the street who he hasn't talked to you in more than an hour then something's up. That is just a really freaking beauteous uh, way to encapsulate it. But it's a big damn neighborhood, gentlemen, and it takes a long time for information to traverse that if, you know, if they're, if they're limited by flat Einsteinian space. So there, there's, you know, this might be the cockeyed optimist in me, but I mean, you know, I, I can't help but think that, you know, somewhere there's a hello, you know, <laughs> a few parsecs away waiting to reach our ears. So anyway, that's just my bit. Yeah, I'm... As Stephen kind of concluded, Stephen Webb, uh, it, it, from in his book, there's a much more likelihood that, that that life is widespread throughout the galaxy than that uh, civilized life is widespread throughout the galaxy. True that. I'm going to go so far as to say I think that it's extremely unlikely that there are Romulans and Klingons out there. Um, Alas, they're, they're, or, maybe, uh, or if they are, they're a very, very, very long way away, and we're not going to run into them for um, a lot more than the 24th century. So anyway, I'm going to get back to uh, the next question. Uh, this one's going to be for you, Tobias, I think. Um, and I want to get back into this uh, computer intelligence stuff. Um, so you talk about some of the possible downsides in the interactions between flesh and blood, human beings, and uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, what were some of your inspirations, and where did you learn so much about complexity theory? Well, this is actually a really lovely anecdote about the potential cross-fertilization of radical geekiness and um, one's questing about for a career path. Um, I learned about chaos theory um, my first year of graduate school. You know, said, well, I'm going to be a psychologist. What kind of psychologist? I don't know. Um, I read Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. And, you know, Crichton's one of the few novelists who puts footnotes in his books. And I, I love that. I loved that about him. Um, and I dove deep into chaos theory. And I read James Gleick's book, uh, Chaos. And, you know, uh, unbeknownst to me, I was at the precipice of a life-changing encounter with a domain of thought. I mean, it's it's... Once I understood chaos theory, you know, to the extent that one can, and you know, added complexity theory in there, nothing ever looked the same again. It was one of those Copernican moments, you know, where you can look at a picture of a rock against the sky and honestly not know if it's something that could sit on your desk or something you'd need pitons to climb. And that is what impressed the fractal organization of the universe into my head. Um, things are self-similar. Okay. If you ever you know, look up fractals, <clears throat> the fractional dimensions, you know, I know you know this, I'm just very, uh, but, um, you know, it, it's the dimensions between zero and one, essentially, and it, it's a degree of irregularity, and nature tends to observe that algorithm. So things are self-similar at different scales of observations, you know, the, the, the trunk looks like the bough, looks like the branch, looks like the twig, looks like the leaf, you know, bronchial, you know, uh, passages. So this self-similarity is woven into the into the structure of any aspect of the universe which is subject to non-equilibrium conditions. I mean, equilibrium, everything's very predictable and Euclidean. But once you start throwing a flux of energy through the mix, then, whoa, things get interesting. 
and that's where you know the 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 irregularities in matter and energy and information give rise to things like self-organization where you know the the product of the of the chemical reaction is part of the process of the chemical reaction and nature itself iterates and once i understood that then you know after you know my skull reconstituted from the top of my head being blown off um it, it became endemic to everything. And as I started to learn about one aspect of complexity theory, which is neural networks, you know, which is information processing, not by linear, you know, like sort of pings to a central processing unit, but by networks of really dumb nodes interacting with each other in incredibly complex ways. And what emerges from that is incredibly sophisticated behaviors and information processing akin to evolution which is another whole thing I can get into at some point, but you know, then you'd never shut me up. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Sure. I, that's a, that goes a long way towards answering the question. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's great. Very, very interesting. Um, uh, so I'm going to talk uh, again for both of you. Um, you both are great writers and, you know, write, ha have written, amazing stuff that's that i found incredibly entertaining so but but there's a problem here uh you're independent sci-fi writers and you don't have big budget publishers behind you um so what kind of challenges do you face getting readers to buy and read your books um or do they do is, this, is that not a problem are you just happy with, with a couple of readers is that good enough good enough that i've read it uh, so I just what, kind of curious what your um, how you faced that challenge and you know what you've learned from it. Well, before anything else is said, I bloody love that you read it. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to sell that short. Um, <laughs> let me just answer this real quick, and that I want to really want to hear what your impressions are, Osmo. Um, for me, basically, it has been unending hustling on social media. Um, you know, that's I will post constantly about, hey, you've never heard of me, but. I have this book um, and, you know, posting like vignettes and weak character studies and occasionally uh, chapters from the audiobook I've <clears throat> mostly recorded. Um, and what's beautiful about that is it creates opportunities where I've connected with, you know, like people, including you, you Joel. Um, and that, that's been my method and it has, you know, not been as successful as my wildest dreams would have projected, but I mean, it has yielded dividends beyond mere book sales. Well, I know it works because you got me hooked, uh, from uh, how many different ways and uh, that you drummed it into my head that you had this book <laughs> out there. And wow. I finally I felt like I had to, um, take a look at it and had no regrets. Sweet. Um, yeah, so Erasmo, any uh, any thoughts on that? How'd you get people to read K three plus? Um, you know, I I focus on writing the story. I didn't even think about the marketing or the returns. I just got it into my head that I had to get the story out. And if you are self published, it's like you cannot get above the noise. And um, that is uh, that is a huge uh, that is a huge uh, handicap to uh, <clears throat> to start the game with. Um, for me, what has worked the best is writing um, articles on Medium, scientific articles on Medium, uh, based on the scientific topics that are brushed in K three plus. And that has gotten a good uh, number of people to read the novel. Like my uh, Fermi Paradox um, article uh, got a lot of readers and it did sell a number of copies. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that this is another way, uh, podcasting, that you can, we can get a few people thinking about it and uh, maybe some following through. And at the end of this, I want to get some uh, links from you guys to post in the show notes so people know exactly where to go to, to get more information and hopefully to pull out their wallets and their credit cards and uh, download something. 
So, um, that would be lovely. let me know, let me know um, what other stories or upcoming projects that you guys want to talk about. Or is there anything else coming out for you, Tobias? After New Eyes, uh, I believe there you said you have another book. Um, and uh, well, before you answer that, I just want to tell you that I fell in love with your characters in the story so much I really wanted to see more of them. And I like, is there a sequel? Uh, coming out, uh, what happens to Jenna and Naomi and all that? Well, I know what happened to Naomi, but it was the new Naomi. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm spoiling. Um, and Erasmo, um, you know, a billion years is fine, but um, surely you've got something in the works for what happens as humanity approaches the heat death of the universe in another trillion years or so. Uh, do we escape into another fresh young universe? I mean, why keep the time scale so short here? You know, let's <laughs> expand things a little bit. Well, the the time scale just fell into my lap because in order to reach the Virgo cluster at a sublight speed, and you have to stop uh, every certain number of light years to colonize other stars and so on. It would be about a billion years before you make it to the Virgo closer. But regarding future projects, um, th this story, uh, the way that mankind can go to space and spread, because we already have a lot of the technologies that are necessary. We have to, some of them need to be uh, scaled up, tested, and so on to be effective in space. Some, some of them need to be developed, but we already have a lot of the technology necessary to go to space, get a foothold, and colonize the, human, the solar system. So my, um, what's coming up for me is I want to continue spreading the word out. I want to continue fighting those um, with deeply ingrained planetary bias. And... <laughs> Um, basically, I want to get the word out that there is another option besides trying to live on Mars or in the clouds of Venus or in the moon. Okay. Can I, uh, can I just jump in here? I just I have a, a quick thought on this whole deeply ingrained planetary bias business because I, I too, suffer from that particular malady. Um, I did suffer. You know, I, I bounce in my chair at the prospect. So there's very little suffering actually involved from my subjective reality. Um, one of the things that, uh, that defines me is that I am, as Joel mentioned, I am also a mythology junkie and I am, I, I don't know, I don't know. I'm in communion with the shade of old Joseph Campbell about the, 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 the profound psychological and metapsychological significance of a landscape. I think, you know, you, you said the planets are the womb and, you know, and that we moved into caves. And what's interesting is that we emerged from one womb and moved into another womb. Um, if you want to look at the imagery of caves, sorry, I got a little Freudian there. Um, but it, it, I think that there's a certain painting with the grain in terms of our for want of a better term, archetypal consciousness that planets would satisfy despite their, you know, their disadvantages. I think that having the ground underfoot is grounding, haha, um, orienting in a way which is not easily dismissed for me. I think space is going to be so strange and is going to be such a collective trauma once people find themselves in a space where they look in the sky and there's this teeny tiny blue dot and there's everything else. Um, I think that's going to mess with us. And that's one of the reasons I see planets as a good transitional space. That being said, I think in terms of the available real estate, you, you know, giant space born habitats can't be beat. And as our numbers increase along with our ambitions, let alone our, you know, our travel aspirations. I mean, that, is going to be necessary. I just think that there is there's a basis for a psychological consideration of the value of a planet, which is not easily dismissed. In my office, I have a picture of a sunset over Gusov Crater on Mars. 
and it's the most haunting image I've ever seen. And many of my clients will say, hey, did you take that? And I'm like, <laughs> I wish, um, you know, because but they look at it and they see a place. They see a place where people live, where they look over the mountains and the sun sets. And I think that it is so at least for, you know, however long evolution takes, it's going to be ingrained in our consciousness at such a primordial level that it would, uh, it gives me pause to consider abandoning that level of experience prematurely. That was a lot of words. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, we are humans and we love land. And definitely I, I understand it because I, you know, until six years ago, I, I thought we would live on planet. But also consider that perhaps in the next two centuries, we will be able to build them the size of the size of a continent. And these yes. things are so big, you can fit five billion people with a bee. You look up in the sky and you see the clouds. You don't see the other, you see continents on the, on the sky, but you don't even get to see the cities because they are, 600, uh, 1,200 kilometers away in the sky. So you can only detect the cities at night because they are so huge. And again, we don't know exactly how these things will play out, but as you said, uh, Tobias, uh, the real, the planet real state is limited. Yes. Yeah, I, I want to just throw in my little objection, um, which is... Uh, a little different. I mean, I see Tobias's point, uh, the Joseph Campbell thing really resonates. And I'm also thinking like I, I, for a while I flirted with Taoism and everything is about the grain and you know, the Lee that's that, um, that, and that, that really strikes me as, uh, uh, pretty compelling. Uh, but, um, more than just the idea of having ground underfoot, I'm thinking in terms of one of the things that I love is diversity. And uh, maybe it's a little bit the ADHD in me, um, but I can only see, I think what it, what really struck me in my reading uh, more than anything was uh, the first book that Kim Stanley Robinson wrote. Um, and it was actually about the fourth one he published, but it was the very first one he wrote, uh, was called um, The Memory of Whiteness. And it's a... Uh, an amazing book. It's it's set in like uh, 3800 or something, uh, and it's humanity has spread throughout the entire solar system, and it's a it's told from the very distant from Pluto or uh, inward. And so there's this tour of this, the, the music features heavily in it. There's this musical uh, tour that co- goes from the farthest reaches of the solar system into Mercury, you know, and hits all the different worlds along the way. And humanity has settled in so many different ways and in so many places with so many different levels of gravity and different kinds of constraints. Uh, And it's created these incredibly uh, vibrant and varying cultures on each world uh, based on the all the things that have impacted them. And that to me is something that I just absolutely loved and, and thought like, you know, I want to see that. I want to get to that uh, reality where there's that much difference around, you know, because the, um, I, and what I would want to do is make the whole tour. I'd want to explore them all and, you know, see, see what all these different cultures and all these different worlds are like. And maybe it's a fantasy, um, but you know, it's, Kim Stanley Robinson wrote hard science fiction, so he had it pretty um, well explained, you know, how it how it worked. And one thing I was going to say about um, science fiction in general, um, and I think is, uh, as a non-author, I have to say, but, um, you know, a lot of times we're, we're very aware of how science fiction predictions are so wrong so much of the time, right? Um, and these are brilliant guys that are writing these stories and they've, you know, they know every, they know a lot about human nature and they know a lot about science and technology and everything, but still they get everything wrong. And I think one of the main reasons why these brilliant people get things wrong 
is because they're writing from a perspective that's rooted in the present at the time they're writing, you know, in a mindset that's of the present. And as humanity develops and surprises emerge uh, and different, you know, nobody knew about the internet 50 years ago um, and how it would completely dominate our culture. And so we don't know what's going to completely dominate our culture in another 50 years. And when the people 50 years from now will have a mindset that's very different from the, that of the authors who are writing science fiction about that time now. Right. So to me, that's why it's so wrong. Why everybody, why it's inevitable that you're going to get everything wrong uh, or a lot of things wrong. And so, uh, I just look forward to that. I, I like surprises. I don't want to know how things are going to happen. I want to see um, things be different in various ways. Well, it's, so, it's funny. What um, the, the the original question before I took us down this you know this tributary, um, that, uh, allegedly Shelley Winters was going to write an autobiography entitled "All Tributaries and No Stream." which I really wish she had done because that's the best title ever, um, speaking of ADHD. Um, but you mentioned uh, other things that, you know, that I've written, that I've been involved in future projects. And one of the things that actually just dropped, you know, under two weeks ago was an anthology of cyberpunk stories in which I have one story. There are like 14 amazing authors and me. And um, uh Joseph, you know, the, the guy from the hospital, um, and I started writing cyberpunk, you know, because that's more his style. But I'm lousy at cyberpunk because I don't do dystopia well. You know, I, I, I don't I, – I'm, I'm not a utopian. I think that there's always going to be warts and, you know, and you know, blemishes um, and perhaps even the occasional tumor. But ultimately, I think that the, the, the life of civilization um, is one that evolves. So, you know, the cyberpunk, it's called Neo Cyberpunk Volume 2. And there's some amazing stories in there. And mine is sort of a cyberpunk vampire crossover. But <laughs> I just, I wanted to th throw it in there that I, um, I, I don't do dystopia well, as has probably come out in the course of this conversation. Hmm. You know, New, Eyes is, uh, New Eyes is a hopeful vision of the future. I mean, it's, you know, Earth is in a bad way and heading towards some unpleasant stuff. But Mars is, you know, the, 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 the tabula rasa. It's where, you know, people have settled and have elected to leave their baggage behind and create a new branch of civilization, a chance to rewrite the code. And not everybody succeeds, obviously, but I mean, just the notion that that is an idea on the, on the, in the noosphere is one that is incredibly positive for me. If I may, I think in the next 50 years, we are going to see wars over water, wars because of climate, and we're going to see a lot more war and a lot more conflict, especially over resources. Uh, that's the only prediction that I'm sure about. Yeah, I, yeah, I hope you're wrong. I hope you're wrong. And I think there's there's some possibility that you are because um, there as we've gotten more connected and that seems to be something that we will only continue to get more con connected um, there. There becomes the, the cost of war becomes so obvious uh, mm. that uh, it's you know, easier to, it's more compelling to avoid it than ever. Um, and I think the the greater connection also has a, uh, an effect on, on uh, diminishing nationalism, you know, and tribalism, uh, and that we, we tend to, that's another reason I love diversity. I love to connect with people like, you know, like you, Marasmo from, you know, very far away. Um, and, uh, you know, my wife is from Russia, you know, and, um, the, that's going to Asia. It was one of the greatest vacations I ever took just to see the, the different perspective there. Uh, there's, um, I, I have, I have hopes that, uh, we will, it will definitely have our disasters and our, our skirmishes on our, uh, I'm, I'm hoping we can continue to avoid 
uh, nukes, but who knows that could happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh, but I, but I, I'm I'm really somewhat confident that things will improve in the long haul uh, in that regard. I think that there are other things that really concern me about the future, and that's more about like stasis and getting uh, too comfortable uh, and people becoming like too rooted in their comfort. And um, Robert Zubrin of the, the Mars Society had has a, a phrase that's always stuck with me since I first read uh, The Case for Mars, which is feathering our nests. Uh, the, the fear that we will, you know, use our technological improvements to continually feather our nests, to keep getting more and more comfortable to, and we'll get into the metaverse. You know, he didn't use that term then, but, uh, you know, the metaverse is all about, you know, just having everything in, in your mind and being able to just relax and be comfortable, have three square meals a day and uh, go anywhere you want and do anything you want. And that that might be enough for 99% of the population, you know, and I'm not sure that that's a positive thing to happen to humanity, um, especially after reading The, Ed- the End of Eternity. Yeah. I, I, uh, the the, the uh, main uh, message I got out of that was um, this is the wrong path to take to to uh, settle into a uniformity of uh, humanity uh, and to get away from risk and to uh, that the, we need to push ourselves to confront more challenges to continue to you know spark our evolution and to drive ourselves into more innovation and more um, you know, change is good. And if we start getting into a fear of change, uh, then, you know, we're, we become, we will plateau and just kind of, um, settle out. And uh, yeah, I worry about that too. Yeah. I, I I mean, the, the, the sort of involuted solipsistic, view of, of civilization that becomes more and more planet bound, you know, where, you know, the, whatever's going on with the Kardashians is more important than, you know, photographing a black hole, you know, there, there, there is a certain uh, sclerotic um, property to that, which I think is very problematic. I mean, that that's in addition to, you know, having all our eggs in one basket in the event of a, you know, calamitous asteroid impact, et cetera. I think that's one of the greatest dangers of remaining uniplanetary is that we just will collapse into our own navels, essentially. And, you know, something like the metaverse, you know, that's one of the features of, you know, of cyberpunk is that people whose life circumstances are so bloody dreadful, you know, live in this, you know, cyberspace all the time. And, you know, they come out and they look like the characters from Wally on the ship, you know, just sort of sitting in a chair. Um, I mean, I, well, I think, yeah. The the, um, the interesting thing, I've, I've never been really big into uh, cyberpunk and the dystopias and everything that much, but um, it strikes me that there there's they seem to be mostly about you know really difficult life and and horrible conditions and all that, and I, what I'm talking about is something like it's almost 180 from that. You know, it's the idea of life becoming too good and too too perfect to the point where uh, we're, we're not driven to, to, uh, to change. And, and I, I kind of feel like that, uh, you know, danger and uh, risk and, um, you know, unheard of challenges like weird gravity levels and, you know, weird atmospheres uh, are um, something that would be really a good antidote to that. You know that that at some point you're going to have to get out of the comfort zone. Well, speaking of Robert Zubrin quotes, I mean one one of my favorite quotes is that the chief export of a Mars colony will be ideas. You know, yeah. these, adapting to these wildly different circumstances. You know, and and you know trying to transcend you know adversities that are unprecedented in our evolutionary history will in effect you know push us to evolve. Um, in terms of like resource wars and such, I mean, one of the things that I really have my eye on is next generation fission. Um, I mean, fusion, of course, but that's, you know, 
what's the old joke, 30 years away and always will be. Um, but next generation fission, you know, which is like passively cooled and you know, essentially meltdown proof and incredibly energy dense and reprocesses waste. So it becomes, you know, renewable. Um, and you know, the, 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 the curing of the concrete of a plant will produce more CO2 than the operation of the plant itself. So there you have things like desalination, you have things like, you know, running grow lights, you know, in uh, like Northern hemispheres, you know, things that, you know, disaster relief from small modular reactors, which seems to be barged in and, you know, renewables, of course, but I mean, you know, other renewables that is, of course, but I think an energy dense future is a thriving future and a future in which the possibility of innovation uh, remains robust. I think that if we continue down our current course, God forbid, then you know the the enemy the enemy <laughs> the energy to power innovation is going to be in dwindling supply, and that's where we start getting into the you know the the warlord scenario. Any thoughts, Erasmo? A little. Over. Um, I'll just say that I'll I'll just close with the sun produces in one second nearly 500,000 times the total global energy consumption of the human race. Just try to wrap your mind about those numbers. Rather than using resources to produce energy here on Earth for those who want to stay on Earth, we can capture that energy in space and beam it down to the ground as um, low-energy radio waves, and that allows you to have energy 24 by 7 and with zero emissions. Word. And in space, solar panels capture possibly tens of times more energy than on the surface of Earth. Now, and I want to make sure that you understand, Erasmo, that I'm not anti-space settlements. Like, I, I no, love the idea of space settlements. And, you know, when you go back to, I grew up in the 60s, and uh, I remember seeing those first uh, visualizations of uh, the O'Neill space cylinders that just blew my mind. We had a coffee table book of those that I would spend hours looking at and just like that. And there's another way of looking at it too. Uh, what you describe in, in these gigantic worlds uh, spinning uh, is that is something so different to our normal conception that that's going to drive things too. It's going to drive humanity to a different place than, than we are, you know, mentally, emotionally, we will have, um, so that it, that's not something to, to, you know, to forget about. That's, that's going to be a big, th big thing. I just want it all. Yeah, that's all. I want to have, uh, enormous numbers of, of, uh, incredible space settlements. I, I don't want them to all be the same. I want them to be different so I can go from one to the other and see how things are different. Uh, but I also want to, uh, you know, after a while I get bored with that and I want to go check out some planets. Sounds good to me. That's assuming I live for another, you know, billion years like your protagonist. <laughs> if he it's could, open. you know, why couldn't I? I think you said he was born in 66, right? Uh, Federico was born in 66. I was yes, not. I was born about nine years too early. He's, he's my age. Well, this has been an amazing discussion, and I'm really happy to have had you guys on. Um, I really hope that our listeners found this interesting, and um, I really hope that they check out your books, uh, because uh, I think it would do them all a wonderful service if they did that. So thanks so much for both of you coming on the podcast. I wish you well. hope you continue to be so audacious and creative and looking forward to more great stuff from both of you. So keep it up. Thank Thanks. you so much, Joel. So that'll do it for this episode. And I'm so grateful to our guests for coming on and talking about their books. I'd love to hear from any listeners who are intrigued enough to read for themselves and to share your takes on the novels. I'd also love it if you would help spread the word, as it's hard for indies to find notice in the crowded field of science fiction coming from big budget publishers. Uh, links to Tobias and Erasmus' books and other info will be in the show notes. 
On our next episode, we'll be concluding the story of the search by the mule in Second Foundation. When we left the story, the various threads were converging. Thanks to that mysterious hypertracer, the mule seems to be hot on the trail of Pritcher and Chanis, and the speakers of the Second Foundation seem almost ready to confront him. Pritcher seems suspiciously happy for some reason. And what's Chanis really thinking? I promise to reveal all, and in only a couple of weeks, so I shall. Come back for the stirring, twist-filled conclusion of Search by the Mule in our next episode here on Selden Crisis. Thank you.